This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. I'm Junior Doan. Welcome to Junior Doan's The Spark. Thank you for joining me today. My guest is Dr. Donald Abelson, the director of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government, St. Francis Xavier University, and an authority on think tanks in Canada and the United States. Welcome, Dr. Abelson. Tell us about the Brian Mulroney Institute. The Brian Mulroney Institute of Government was set up in 2018 and it was the hope of our 18th Prime Minister to create both an undergraduate program in public policy and governance and a research institute uh, to help uh, promote uh, research and teaching on leadership. So our goal really at the Institute is to support students who are interested in taking on leadership roles in government or the not-for-profit sector, possibly in the private sector, and also to increase awareness about common mistakes that uh, leaders often make and how it is they could possibly avoid them. So it really is an institute that really speaks to uh, Prime Minister Mulroney's legacy uh, and his hope that young people will enter public service and that they will tackle some of the major challenges, not only confronting Canada, but challenges around the globe. What do you consider um a successful uh, incorporation of the coursework? In other words, what do you hope the graduate will come out with or changed uh, in their thinking, goals, values? Absolutely. Um, it, it's a four-year undergraduate program in public policy and governance. And our hope is that students uh, will develop the critical thinking skills that are necessary that will serve them throughout life, uh, whether they go into government or, as I said, in the not-for-profit sector or possibly in the private sector. We want to help create well-rounded people who have uh, the interests of, of Canada uh, at heart and really want to make a contribution. Uh, they have a wonderful opportunity at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. Uh, this school was Brian Mulroney's alma mater. He graduated in 1959 and is certainly our most famous benefactor. And again, his hope really was to give students an opportunity 
to take advantage of our wonderful facilities, our gorgeous campus and supportive community, and to really develop an appetite uh, for public service. And I think we're well on our way. Uh, in terms of performance indicators, we look at how much our enrollment has grown over the past three to four years. Uh, we've seen a 140% increase in enrollment. Uh, we are graduating some very high caliber students who are already being uh, recruited by federal government departments and international uh, agencies and organizations. And they will serve as our ambassadors uh, for this program. So a lot of other metrics that we use to evaluate where we are, but we're very pleased uh, with what we have accomplished in the past three and a half, four years. Is there an emphasis on domestic policy or international relationship? Yeah, it's really both. Uh, you know, of course, uh, because this is a Canadian university, what we want our students to be able to understand the intricacies of policymaking in Canada, uh, but they're also exposed to American politics, European politics, and of course, uh, a whole range of policy issues, uh, whether it's the environment, uh, strategic defense, maritime security, uh, border security, whatever it might be. Again, we really want to create a cohort of students who really have a thirst and appetite, just a, a burning desire to understand the complexities of policymaking and to make a contribution to enhancing uh, the inner workings of policymaking in Canada and abroad. Interesting. What is your role as director? Well, my role uh, is is kind of interesting. It's almost a hybrid position. I, I'm responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the Mulroney Institute. I'm responsible for developing, maintaining, and expanding our research program. Uh, we have a leading academic series with one of the top university presses in Canada, uh, two occasional paper series. We have a distinguished speaker series, a, a fellows program, a visiting fellows program. So that's just part of my job. The, the other role really is to engage in public outreach. So to do interviews like this, uh, interviews with other media outlets uh, to talk about you know, some of the challenges confronting our government uh, and uh, things taking place in the world. And I do this along with a group of very talented colleagues and researchers who have expertise in, in various areas. Now you wrote a paper, uh, on Mr. Ronnie and Reagan. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your latest thoughts of friendship at the highest levels of Moscow. Well, of course, I'm in a unique position to be able to speak to the prime minister on a regular basis, which I do. And one of the things that I really wanted to explore was the relationship he had with the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. And it was really uh, it was an interesting undertaking uh, because I had uh, you know, insight provided by the former prime minister uh, into their working relationship and personal relationship. And so one of the things I wanted to focus on was the extent to which the friendship they developed not only help facilitate cooperation uh, on the bilateral front between Canada and the United States, but more importantly, how their relationship helped them manage or uh, manage or accommodate dissent. And what a lot of people don't realize, given how strong their friendship was, that they actually disagreed on far more things they agreed on, but it was their personal friendship that really created a foundation, a lasting foundation for enduring cooperation between Canada and the United States. And now I'm going to be following up that research uh, with a paper looking at the relationship between uh, Brian Mulroney and President George H.W. Bush. And as you know, 
uh, Prime Minister Mulroney was the first uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister ever to be asked to eulogize not only one, but two American presidents. So he had a unique relationship uh, with uh, pr uh, President Reagan and President Bush, a special relationship with the United States. And what my research has tried to do is to really shed light on a very important period in the bilateral relationship between our two wonderful countries. Here's a speculative question. Uh, America and Canada are both Christian, Western-oriented nations, so we have a certain commonality. But would that friendship ever be possible to the extent and the trust level if you were dealing with, uh, or whoever was at the top, were dealing with, uh, say, a communist organization or a totalitarian organization? No, I don't think so. I think you know the the relationship between our two countries is largely based uh, not necessarily on a common history, but but a respected history. We know that there are fundamental differences between Canada and the United States. We understand that we are involved in an asymmetrical power relationship. We have one tenth the population of the United States, but we share a 5,500 mile long border. Uh, we engage in over two billion dollars a day in two way trade. Uh, we consider the United States a close friend and ally. The relationship, like many others, has gone through ebbs and flows. But what we do understand is how critically important it is for our leaders to get along. And even though they might disagree on the directions of different policy initiatives, there has to be that common respect and decency that allows the relationship to move forward. And again, we, we, we've had some bumps along the way. There are many American presidents who have not appreciated what Canadian prime ministers have said. There are many Canadian prime ministers who find themselves at odds with American presidents. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really want to focus on Prime Minister Mulroney and President Reagan, because that took us back to a very special time. And it provided us with lessons, important lessons, that we could all learn about how leaders can get along and the impact that that relationship can have on moving forward uh, important policy goals for both countries. Sorry, As I'm listening no, I... to you, I'm thinking about America, and I'm thinking that kind of philosophy is good for us to go back to if we can figure out how, and that is what do we have in common, what can we share, and not all this endless emphasis on differences. <laughs> well, I, absolutely. It's, a, absolutely. it's a goal, it's a good philosophy for human relationships at least. Here, that's a, well, I don't usually make political comments, but I am appreciative of that cultural influence as being useful. Yeah, I, and and I think I think it is really important uh, to kind of step back and see what kind of relationship we have enjoyed in the past. We are two sovereign countries that pursue at times very different interests, but that's natural. That's to be expected. So the national interests of both countries will not necessarily align. So what becomes even more important then is how that relationship is managed and nurtured and cared for. And I think what Prime Minister Mulroney and President Reagan were able to do, and in fact, what Prime Minister Mulroney and President Bush were able to accomplish even more, was to lay a proper foundation of respect. And even though they faced you know, uh, pressure from different political constituencies that were pulling them, in different directions, they were able to find that common ground. And, and as I concluded my paper, I said so much can be more, so much more can be accomplished by exchanging handshakes.
than insults. And I, I really believe that. And I think there is room uh, in both countries for improvement, uh, but we have to get beyond the bickering. We have to get beyond uh, the infighting and really kind of figure out what is important in this incredibly important uh, relationship between our two countries. There's a certain peculiarity about the West, which is also makes it uh, almost unique, and that is our ability to peacefully change uh, presidents and uh, leaders. So um, moving just a little bit away, when you try to look for students, how what are you looking for? How do you make it known? Is it mostly an Eastern Canada interest? Is it a Western Canada? How do you see the student membership um, being in, say, five, ten years? I, I don't think we're, we're focused on recruiting students from any particular part of the country. Um, at St. Francis Xavier University, half the students come from the maritime provinces. Um, the other half tend to come from three highly populated uh, parts of the country, Alberta, British Columbia, and Ontario. Uh, we're placing more of an emphasis now on recruiting international students because we know uh, having international students in the class will certainly enrich uh, the experience for all the students in the program. But what we're really looking for are students who feel strongly about their country, students who are interested in politics and economics and sociology and history, uh, students who see themselves in leadership roles, who like to travel, who want experience. Uh, we, we have benefited enormously from the generosity uh, of our donors. Uh, in a very short period of time, this very small liberal arts university of around 4,300 students has become one of the best funded undergraduate programs in public policy and governance in Canada. That's because Brian, Brian Mulroney, when he started this initiative or began fundraising for it, really felt that what the, the most important thing to him was giving every student an opportunity to get a great education uh, something that he was afforded. He came from a very modest background, just like President Reagan did. And he never forgot how important St. Evax was to him. And so his desire uh, isn't just about to promote his legacy. It's about creating future generations of leaders and giving back to an institution that gave him so much. And so when students meet with Prime Minister Mulroney and he visits campus regularly, uh, it, it's an amazing uh, experience to watch unfold, uh, that they are actually in a room with a former prime minister who was a St. of X grad, uh, who came from very you know, modest means and reached the highest levels, not only in Canada, but on the world stage. And so it's an, it's an amazing opportunity. We have a very committed benefactor and wonderful donor. So when you put it all together, I think we offer a very, very exciting package. Now you have an interest in think tanks. How did that come about and what are think tanks? I would say it's more of an interest. It's become an obsession. <laughs> I started uh, writing about think tanks as a PhD student at Queen's University. I was particularly interested in the extent to which a handful of American think tanks tried to shape President Reagan's foreign policy towards Central America. And that kind of morphed into a much broader research program on think tanks in the United States and Canada. I've also written about think tanks in Europe and the Middle East. 
I'm very interested in organizations whose primary goal is to shape public opinion and public policy. Uh, the question of what think tanks are continues to elude many scholars, but we, we, we're looking at organizations that are generally not-for-profit, most are charitable, that have as their principal focus a desire to shape the policy preferences and goals of decision makers and have at their disposal an arsenal of tactics upon which they can rely to increase awareness about important policy issues. I could go on for hours and hours about what think tanks are and what they do, but they're absolutely fascinating organizations, uh, the largest populations being found in the United States and in Europe. Uh, but it's an area of research that I've never grown tired of and feel very fortunate that I found something that has really instilled in me a lifelong passion. What I've noticed living in Midland, uh, because we have a big company here, is sometimes the international spouses, the wives, um, they don't think of involving themselves in volunteer activities and when in, uh, in the middle, and when invited, they say, oh, the government's responsible for that. So what is the attitude in Canada towards sort of volunteers or people just taking on a project? Is it let the government do it or the government handles that? Or I see a need and I'm just gonna start a program like Mulroney did. <laughs> I would say a lot of all of what you've said or, or, or parts of everything that you've said um, you know, there are many organizations in Canada that struggle to stay afloat. Um, when you look at the top tier think tanks uh, in Canada compared to the top tier think tanks in the United States, uh, it, it, you know, it's uh, night and day. The top tier think tanks in the United States have budgets in excess of $100 million. In Canada, you're lucky to get to about $20 million. The, the, the budget of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., which I've studied for years, uh, is larger than the top 20 think tanks in Canada combined in a single year. So there's ample opportunity to volunteer. There's ample opportunity to engage in discourse around important policy issues. Uh, and I think one of the important things for, for all of us uh, is just to, to remain aware, to remain engaged, to be civic-minded, and whether it is a participant or an observer uh, showing up and listening to, to guest speakers, helping students, whatever it might be, but just to try and engage the public uh, in a more educated uh, understanding of what is happening uh, in the United States and Canada and abroad to focus on key issues and not you know, engage in the kind of hyperbole which unfortunately has dominated, uh, I would say, both countries in the last number of years. Are there any of the think tanks that take current policy and extrapolate it 50 years going forward or 30 years or something under various assumptions to see what might go wrong, right, what they may have to correct? And is there anything ever corrected at the government level? Well, there, there are a number of think tanks in Canada and the United States that do just that. I mean, when you go back to the late 1800s and early 1900s, why were think tanks created in the first place? It was to help government think its way through complex policy issues. So when you look at the incredibly important role played by Andrew Carnegie and Herbert Hoover and Robert Brookings, these were people who believed during the progressive era that it was so important to bring together experts and allow them to 
applied their scientific expertise to public policy issues of the day. The Brookings Institution was responsible for the creation of a federal budget system. The United States didn't have one before Brookings put that on the table. The Council on Foreign Relations, incredible contributions to our understanding of war and peace. So if think tanks are really doing their job, it's not just about looking at what has happened, but what, what will happen and what are the various factors that come into play that policymakers have to understand. It's about looking at patterns of behavior. It's about looking at cycles. It's about looking ahead 10, 20, 30 years uh, and trying to figure out what governments need to do, how they have to adjust in order to position their governments more effectively uh, to address those types of challenges and needs. So think tanks aren't just about looking back. They're like Janice and Minerva. They have to look back and forward at the same time. What is the role of social media in this? It seems bigger and bigger, even to me. Everybody's commenting on things and they have their podcasts and this and that. How does that new development play into think tanks, uh, policy making, suggestions? It's had a huge impact, uh, not only in, in shaping or influencing what think tanks do, but it has increased competition in the marketplace of ideas. And so, you know, you have to put a lot of faith in, in the work, work of some think tanks, but that means doing your due diligence. You know, unlike many professional associations that regulate uh, the behavior of, of various organizations and make sure that they have their, their uh, members have certain credentials. So whether it's the American Bar Association, the American Dental Association, whatever it might be, think tanks are not regulated. Uh, the only way they are uh, regulated uh, is by, in Canada, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency and in the United States, the Internal Revenue Agency. So it's more about how the money is raised and the kind of partisan activities in which they may or may not engage that tends to preoccupy government, not the quality or lack thereof of the expertise that they are offering. And so it becomes incumbent on scholars, on journalists, on members of the engaged public to look at the work of think tanks and try to reach a conclusion about whether or not their recommendations make sense, whether or not they're foolhardy, um, but there, there really is no central body that is regulating the kind of work that think tanks produce. And right now, uh, you're looking at about nine to 10,000 think tanks around the world. And when you multiply that by the, the amount of work that they generate each year, and then you add to that universities and uh, political pundits and other advocacy organizations and other participants who also engage in policymaking, it has become virtually impossible for most people to keep track of what has been said and what has been done, which forces people like me, uh, who study think tanks to focus on specific policy issues and to see how they've unfolded over time, decisions that governments have made, and whether or not their ideas have in any way been influenced by think tanks or other types of actors. What I'm thinking about is corruption in government. We have some of that in the United States now right. and probably another time. Is that something you have in Canada? Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, I think in, in, in any democratic system, uh, you, you, have, you have more than ample opportunity for various forms of corruption, whether it's in government or those trying to influence government. 
And, you know, uh, you know some think tanks certainly serve as watchdogs. Uh, there are other types of organizations that do that too uh, in both of our countries. But what concerns me more, more than anything else is if we as an educated, uh, as educated citizens cannot agree on what the truth is, if we cannot agree, <laughs> That's an issue. What, right, if we can't trust those people who are elected to office who represent us, we have begun to chip away at the very foundation of democracy and the, the very strength of the American Republic. So when you put that on the table, that you can no longer take for granted that election results will be accepted, that you can no longer take for granted that there'll be a peaceful transition. And it's not only happening or did happen in, in the United States, the seeds for populism have been planted in Canada and in other countries around the globe, as, as you know very well. And it makes us uh, nervous, uh, but it also provides us with an incentive to engage, not to sit back, but to remind our officials that they have a responsibility uh, to, to speak up and to ensure that uh, they are able to govern us effectively and that they are doing the right thing. So it, it, it falls on all of our shoulders. You know, it seems to me a study of history says it goes to more relaxed and more constrained between chaos and bureaucracy. And so at least as an American, I'm asking myself, what? What is the constraint? I mean, where you can't say anything anymore, but where's the answer to that? Uh, that isn't really the way we are in the United States, but it is the way we are now. So what happens next? And I wish there were a think tank and not a, just a, a ball reader about that. So maybe not a concern, but... Uh, <laughs> As my Russian friend said, I left Russia for freedom, you know, and some of the things I'm seeing now is too much like Russia. So listen, well, thank you very much. I do have just one question. What values did your parents emphasize with you growing up? Oh, uh, well, I, I, my, my father just turned 94. Uh, I, I was blessed with wonderful parents who instilled in me a love of education and to never hold back. Um, uh, you know, never to be afraid to speak my mind, uh, which I, I did throughout my lifetime with my three older sisters. Didn't always go over well, but uh, uh, just ne never, never to feel bullied, never to feel that my voice wasn't as important as everybody else's. And, uh, you know, my father uh, practiced law for about 40 years and he taught me very early on and he was uh, very well connected with several cabinet ministers uh, in different governments in Ottawa. And the one piece of advice he gave me uh, that, that stuck throughout my life was, doesn't matter who you meet in life, whether it's a cabinet minister or the person who cleans your office at the end of the day, everybody deserves to be treated with respect and integrity. And uh, that's how I've tried to lead my life. Wonderful example, wonderful model. So thank you for appearing. Thank you for everybody for tuning in. Remember my motto, go out and do something kind for someone today you know and someone today you don't know. And do it every day this week, and I'll see you next time. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www 
virginiadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.